This is Everything Happens. I'm Kate Bowler. Something you may have noticed if you've been listening for a while is that one of the most difficult things to get right in tough times is communication. How do you talk to someone who's going through their own version of horrible? So I'm not just talking about skills or not of family and friends who do, for the most part, gather around with love and prayer and usually wine and cookies, and for that I am eternally grateful. But the communication skills of medical personnel or others can be, let's just say, wanting. Sometimes weak, sometimes wonderful, but what makes the difference? I'm lucky enough today to talk to Alan Alda, who is just crazy famous. He is an actor and director, winner of seven Emmy Awards, and star of the classic TV show MASH and many movies, including Crimes and Misdemeanors, Everyone Says I Love You, and Bridge of Spies. Alan Alda has spent a long time trying to train doctors and scientists how to communicate with their patients, their peers, and the public. I'm hoping he's got some real advice for us today. Alan, I'm so honored to speak with you. Oh, it's great to talk to you, Kate. Thank you. Well, I was excited to learn that your dad was a vaudeville star and you grew up in this world of theater. And you've said that you learned a lot about communication and empathy from acting and in particular improv. I think some people might be really surprised by that. So what did improv teach you about empathy? You know, the essence of improv, what improv teaches you is that you must focus on the other person, and the other person comes first. One of the principles is you make your partner look good. <laughs> I and, like that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to look good. You don't look good at your partner's expense. You don't deny what your partner comes up with. You become partners. What I think is one of the most important elements in good communication is that you don't have in the other person a target of your communication. You have a partner in communication, yeah. which means you're finding out if they're understanding what you're saying. Yeah. And you're also finding out how they feel about it. Your book starts with this insane scene at the dentist's office where you experience a terrific example of miscommunication. That seems like it was a really important moment for you. What happened and what did it tell you? Well, what happened was a dental surgeon had to take out my front tooth <laughs> and said he had this great operation that he was going to do. He was going to he was going to pull down a bit of my gum over the socket and get a great blood supply to the socket, and yeah. everything was going to heal great. And I said, okay. He invented this procedure. Yeah. And he had a white coat on, so I thought he knew what he was doing. Super authoritative. And then he's standing in front of me with the knife, the scalpel, inches from my mouth, and he says, now there'll be some tethering. And I said, what, what? He said, tethering. There'll be tethering. I said, what, what, what's that? He said, tethering, tethering. <laughs> Starts screaming at me. And I let him operate, and I didn't know what it meant. I never, I still don't know what he meant by tethering. <laughs> and as a result of that, he cut that little bit of tissue between your lip and your gums mm. called the frenulum or the frenum, depending on the, what dictionary you look in. And... It turns out that I needed that to smile. So I was making a movie a couple of weeks later, and the cameraman came over to me and said, I thought you were going to smile in that shot. I, I said, I did. He said, no, you were sneering. Oh, no. And I looked in the mirror, and I was sneering. And I, so I went back to the dentist, and I said, you know, I need my face to act with. <laughs> and sometimes I, I have to smile. 
He said, I told you there were two stages to this opera. It had no sympathy, no, no sense of what I was going through. And I don't think I ever went back to the so-called second stage. I don't, I don't remember because I didn't let him in again. Yeah. <laughs> I know, he, he had a thing for my freedoms. <laughs> so it really impressed on me the importance of thinking about the person you're going to stick a knife into. Mm-hmm. You know, what are, they, what are they feeling? What do they understand? I would imagine that's a part of the healing process. Yeah. In fact, now that we teach doctors essentially empathy, in the course of teaching them to communicate better. Yeah. I've come across research that shows that when patients rate their doctors as empathic, mm-hmm. they're 19% more likely to follow the doctor's orders, oh, which sounds to me like there's a certain amount of life-saving in that. I mean, if, if yeah. you take the medicine, if you follow the regimen, do, do the exercise, whatever the doctor recommends, if you're 18% more likely to do it, you're 18% more likely to get better. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember the first time the doctor said I had legions, and I, I, I honestly had no idea he meant tumors. Oh. And like, I'm a reasonably smart person. Yeah. I mean, at least I have a dictionary at home. So I went home, and I found that most of the translation of trying to understand my own illness, like, happened by myself with the dictionary. Yeah, that's, you know, that's called the curse of knowledge. <laughs> Tell me more. Knowledge is not a curse. To have knowledge is a great blessing. Yeah. But when your knowledge is so deep and so complex that you forget what it's like not to understand that language, yeah. that's a curse. Yeah. It's a curse for you and it's a curse for the person listening. Yeah. I had the same thing when my father had a stroke. I was standing by the bedside. He was unconscious mm-hmm. and I, I was trying to talk to him. Yeah. And the doctor said, he's very deep. I didn't know what deep meant. Yeah. When my mother was ill... They said, uh, we're going to have to intubate her. I didn't know what that meant. No. And it turned out it was this horrible experience where they choked her with this device, oh. ramming it down her throat. And there was a constant misunderstanding that I had to live through. Yeah. And you must have been through this many times too. Yeah. I mean, like when you are this the subject of translation, especially to, I mean, with the drugs I'm on, immunotherapy is this whole new frontier. And because of that, we often lack any language for it. And so like, for instance, I have incurable cancer, which means I never get to be a cancer survivor because mm-hmm. I'm not past it. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not terminal, uh, which means we for sure know I mean, we'll all die, surprise, just for everybody. Just anyone listening, and, please and, know we all, as it turns out, do not and, make it out alive. This, will generate, yeah. <laughs> this is going to generate a lot of headlines. <laughs> I have a friend who says, I know we all have to die, but in our lifetime? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It does seem like when people are using the word terminal about me, like they've isolated a special case of someone who's not going to make it. But Well, I think of it as just a bus station where you get off and get on another bus someplace yeah, like, else. <laughs> <laughs> I, that terminal <laughs> for me denial has been very helpful oh i i am a strong advocate of denial yeah i go very cheerily into surgeries i mean like sure <laughs> let's, let's give this a try <laughs> i was on top of a mountain in chile about uh, 15 years ago and i got this terrible pain in my gut mm. and uh it was the worst pain i had ever felt and it turned out that about a yard of my intestine was dying oh my god it lost its blood supply and they carted me down a bumpy mountain road an hour and a half to his little town in Chile called La Serena. And the 
really wonderful surgeon figured out almost immediately what was wrong with me. And he communicated to me beautifully. He said, here's what's happened. Some of your intestine has gone bad. And we have to cut out the bad part and sew the two good ends together. Isn't that perfect? Yeah. The the official name for that is end-to-end anastomosis. If he had said that to me, and if I didn't know what it meant, here I I am woozy with pain and morphine, and it wouldn't have been comfortable for me. But but instead, before they put the thing over my face and put me out, Mm -hmm. all I thought about was, well, this may be it. I may not wake up from this. So uh, I want to get a message to my wife. Yeah. And that ease that he gave me was very important. I wasn't struggling with what's going to happen to me. I wasn't in a panic. But I had an experience in that situation that is so different from yours because I didn't have to face it day after day. Mm. I wanted the pain to be over. Yeah. It was so bad. And I had never imagined such a situation like that where the pain would be so bad. I wanted it to be over any way it could be over. Yeah. But are you are you currently in pain? I mean, I think that's a funny thing about chronic pain is you you stop remembering that you're having it. Oh. So, yes, but it's not as bad as it was. Yeah. Treatment gives you funny side effects like one time because I was in an experimental trial. This is a great example of communication and miscommunication. You always think clinical trial equals Cutting edge, first in line, coolest, in the door, I'm going to get the best stuff. As opposed to, we haven't totally worked out the kinks on this one, but if you guys want to stand in line because you're desperate, that'd be great. And you're officially now a guinea pig. That's right. Yeah. And someone even used the word guinea pig for me one time. And I was like, oh, I think this is not going the way I thought it was. But yeah, they accidentally used a drug for too long that fried off most of the nerve endings on my feet. And then I would just fall over. Oh my which God. Meant me, was, I'm already clumsy. So it looked really awkward. Did it come back? Yeah. As it turns out, uh, nerves regrow a millimeter a day or a week or something. No kidding. So gradually, yeah, it's been a year and um, I'm much less clumsy now. But it did mean that it took a while for me to realize like, oh, maybe what I'm getting is not the like super highway of medicine. Maybe it's like the bumpy road on the side where you really need a Jeep. And I'm so grateful for the stuff that worked. And I try very hard not to regret the stuff. And that's the thing. I mean, I think that we're all, most of us are glad to participate in a trial. And it would help to... If usually when you get the very worst news that the very best person is telling you. Yeah. Because like when I first heard the words stage four cancer, they gave me the intern. I mean, Mm. I was lying in a hospital bed and this like sweet little basically 12-year-old in medicine with like the shortest coat came by and he was like, hi. (laughs) He looked so nervous and his nerves made me nervous and it was 4 a.m. And I just remember thinking like, oh, buddy, you drew the short straw, didn't you? And they just sent you along to me. Mm. And uh, it does make you wish that there was like the person who knew how to give the talk is the one that sits you down at the right time with the right people. You know, this this reminds me of one of our success stories, we, we, we were working with a medical student who had done one of our basic exercises, a mirroring exercise, mm. where you're looking at your partner and you're moving your body and your partner has to be your exact mirror at the exact moment. Yeah. And this, this does so many things. It teaches you 
the basis of communication that you have to help the partner be the mirror. Yeah. You don't trick them out. You don't move too fast. You don't move illogically. You're, you're yeah. staying with them and you're observing them, yeah. helping them be your mirror. And he was on the floor with a um, supervising doctor who took him into a room to explain to a woman that she was going to die of cancer. Oh. And the doctor stood over her, told her, but used words like metastasis. And she wasn't, she wasn't responding. She wasn't crying. She wasn't asking questions. Right. She just looked at him. He finished saying what he had to say and let, left the room. So the medical student said, I don't know if she got it. Would you mind if I go back and talk to her again? Wow. Yeah. And he let him do it. So he goes in the room. He sits down yes. right in front of her, takes her hand in his hands and tells her in absolutely plain language, not using words like metastasis. Yeah. And a tear starts to come down her face. She yeah. starts to really hear him. And he came back to our instructors and said, you helped me do this, but that simple exercise of the mirror, because I was mirroring her, she was mirroring me, and the two of us were mirrors of each other. I helped her face her death, and she helped me be a better doctor. It's a nice example of how much ground you can cover by paying attention to the other person. Well, that was exactly what I said to that little 12-year-old, is I said, you better be holding my hand if you're going to say oh, things like this. Oh, no kidding. I did. You, you literally were yeah. helping that person learn how to do it. Well, because, like, you feel – I mean, I'm – I think I'm reasonably good at, like, reading a room or understanding what's going on. And it did really feel almost immediately like I was behind glass. Mm. And they were having one experience and I was having another. And I wasn't able to, like, reach across and get them to – I know you're not allowed to just run around touching everybody, but touch, like in that story where he holds her hand, like I wanted people to get down on my level and to look at me and to like even just a hand on my arm and say like, this is what's happening right now. Because mostly it was me looking up words like metastasis or, um, or a tone um, that I like to call hostage negotiator neutral, <laughs> where they're like, Ms. Bowler, we understand that you, and it's this like, I'm managing you tone, yeah. and I'm on the other side being like, you think I'm crazy, don't you think I'm going to jump? Yeah, right. I remember many times going to a hospital for one little thing or another, and being spoken to in a general way. This is how I talk to people coming in. Yes. And you're just one of many. I, yeah. you, it doesn't matter who you are. You're, you're the customer. Yeah. Welcome to generic tone. Yeah, exactly. You could be at, it is very to whom it may concern, comma. Oh, are really, you still here? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I, oh, oh did, you pass, did you step away? Sure. I'm still yeah. talking. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> to me, it's the same tone you get when you check into a hotel. Yes. And they say, how's your day been so far? <laughs> Well, up until this moment, it's been fair. <laughs> exactly. And now I'm a robot here. You don't care. Yeah, right. It's true, though. And I try so hard not to be uncharitable. And it's been I've been grateful to get to know more doctors as humans. Mm. But the relationships I have with doctors as humans and the relationships I have as a patient seem totally different. That's interesting. Do you run across doctors who are apparently naturally empathic, warm, thoughtful, considerate? Yeah. I do too. I, yeah. I can think of a couple who are extraordinary yeah. in their ability to be direct, frank, open, plain, yes, and totally 
caring about you, really wanting to know what's what. Yeah. But that, but the difference is, if you don't have that naturally, you can be trained into it. So, how did you teach doctors empathy? Well, we start with improvising. The first thing we do is put them through basic improvising exercises, and they're calibrated the one so that one leads to the next, and that yeah. leads to the next, and then we go into role playing, where they make use of what they've learned mm. about the basis of intimacy, the basis of connection. And that sense of relating is really, the, I think, the most important thing you can learn. Mm. If you can really make connection with another person and make a connection in such a way that you l listen so that you're willing to let the other person change you. Mm. That's a kind of radical thing to say because... You don't know what the person's going to say. Yeah. Why should you let, especially a stranger, why should you let them change you? Yeah. But that's the essence of relating. Relating is you do something, say something, you have a look on your face. It does something to me. If I let it in, it changes me. Yeah. And now we're connected. We're dancing. Yeah. And if we don't do that, it's just me spraying stuff at you, and then you wait till I finished, and you spray stuff at me. It seems so interesting to me that it feels so good to connect to another person. Yeah. yeah. And yet there's a tendency most of us have not to do it. Yeah. Some kind of avoidance. Yeah. yeah. It's so much easier to, to be in our turret, in our castle. Yeah. And not let anybody come across the, the moat. But I can say that as a patient, it makes me feel crazy sometimes. Like I notice myself trying to like add little personal details so that they know I'm a person. Uh, like, yo, like you know, good. I'm a kid, right? Good. In a weird way, but like, yeah. oh, my son's doing this. I'm not bringing out pictures, but I'm close. Or I literally like get out of class that I'm teaching as a human professor and then walk over and then put on a rough cotton gown. And then all of a sudden I'm a patient. And mm -hmm. I feel like I'm trying to refer back to the world I was living in 10 yeah. minutes ago yeah. to be like, I promise if you saw me in another setting, you'd think I was a colleague or someone you want to connect with. Mm. But I guess what I'm saying over and over again is like, I'm human, right? You know, I think every time I'm in a hospital setting, it seemed to me it always boiled down to that gown they give you that exposes your rear end. Yes. There's a message in that, that you're no longer the person you were when you came in with your clothes on. Yeah. You're this patient thing. Yeah. At least that's the message I get wearing the gown. They yeah. probably don't intend that message, but the transaction builds out from there. Yeah. And there's a bridge that has to be crossed all over again. I'm lying on the gurney. The doctor comes in, stands over me. It's a task for the doctor to make contact with this person who's already been diminished by just changing clothes. Yeah. Um. I think mostly out of love. People offer me a lot of advice or have a lot of suggestions of how I might just personally overcome death through sheer will. <laughs> I was wondering if you had any advice for me about how to successfully communicate better with people who are trying but failing to help me. Because I do feel empathy for them. I do. Um, but sometimes I struggle to describe what it's like to be on my side. Yeah. My guess is, based on everything we've been talking about, a lot of it depends on how 
much of a channel you have open between you. Mm-hmm. I feel if somebody is just lecturing me, yeah, I listen and respond in some in a similar way. But yeah. if somebody really is connecting to me, then I then I I open up more. It seems like an easier thing to do, but. I think it depends on what where your heart is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think your technique is really good of bringing up your your child, bringing up bringing that into the conversation. It's interesting that one of the things that I don't think doctors m- may do, many doctors, not all, because some are very good at this, yeah, of finding out about the whole life of the patient and not just the symptoms they come in with, because sometimes. They have other things that they need to take care of too, yeah. and they don't become apparent until you hear the whole story. Yeah, and and it also reinforces this open channel. Yeah. Then, when whatever I have to say, if I'm the doctor, is directed at you as a person, not you as a patient. You as a liver, or you know, <laughs> me as a half a liver now. Oh, yeah, boy. I've got the rest. It's okay. Is the liver the thing that grows back, or it? You know what's funny? It doesn't grow back; it hypertrophies, and that was another problem. What, I don't I, even know what that means. Yeah, see, that was the problem. Is like I couldn't figure out if they were cutting it; it would grow back like a lizard tail, or if they were cutting out half my liver, and then it would just like do what? So it took me forever to realize they were going to cut out half, but it would like puff up to create more mass, and it would regenerate in function a lot. But like, so what? So I don't. How is that different from growing back? Yeah. So it just gets puffy. Or I like, don't know. So like, this is the thing. This is in my own body. Here we are talking about what you ought to know. Yeah, about. I don't know the answer. Like, and, this is a a great example of like I asked a million questions just like that, and I only a little bit know the answer. It's 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 that curse of knowledge thing again. One of the problems is that they spent years or decades learning this stuff. Yeah. They have we rely on them to know it in great detail. It's very important that they do. Yeah. They haven't been spending decades on learning how to explain it to you. And you have not spent decades learning it. <laughs> so it's like coming into a room and somebody speaking Chinese. Yeah. And the best you can do in Chinese is say Mugu Gai Pan. And this is Gulf. Yeah. That's why I I spend uh, most of my time now trying to help doctors and scientists and, and people in men in business, women in business, mm-hmm. many, many different kinds of situations where we can break down that barrier and people learn early on that it's not just good enough to know it. Yeah. You have to be able to say it to people who don't know it. Yeah, yeah. You know, all this has kind of made me realize, like, I think one of the main hopes I had for writing my book was that I want more language that is a little less certain and a little more generous. And I think mostly what I was trying to describe is exactly what you've been describing, which is that little space between people where something a little more magical and generative can happen. Yeah. I think generosity is a really interesting and tricky subject. Because you, there's so much behavior that is intended as generosity, but is really an imposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think of this moment. Arlene and I were walking across the street on Broadway, and there was a woman who seemed to be 10 or 20 years older than us. 
next to us. And one of us said, can we help you across the street? And she said, no, can I help you? <laughs> and I think it's kind of it's kind of indicative of the idea that yeah. it's not helping unless you are actually helping the person wants you to help. You're providing help that the person can use. I'm usually on the receiving end of a lot of people's generosity that I often receive as kind of a tiring certainty. Talk about certainty. I love that notion because I, I talk in the book about the, the the sound of certainty in the voice. Oh, really? Because yeah, because yeah, to me it's um, so. When I was thinking about uh, people who approach me as teachers, they've recently seen a documentary and they very much want me to understand the contents of it, <laughs> and like it's really meant to help. But like there yeah. is a tone of voice to yes, it, and yes. I can tell when it's like on the approach is like, oh, yeah. I've got to be in a learning place because someone's yeah. in a teaching place. Yeah, I know. I that that there's a particular thing about that that gets me because it's not the words themselves. No. It's the tone, and so many things can be subverted by by a tone that says, I'm up here and you're down there. Well, it's the same with the minimizers that I get where they really want me to have more perspective about my cancer, and I think that's a tone thing too because the words at least always sound the same. They're like, at yeah. least you are at, at least, a good at hospital. At least, any sentence that begins with at least. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was shooting for more than at least. <laughs> <laughs> Your book begins with a great quote attributed to George Bernard 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 Shaw, which, as it turns out, he may never have said, but it's the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And I hope that's not true right now because it's been so great getting to know you. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you. You're a great communicator. <laughs> Thank you. you. After we'd had that conversation, we traded places, and Alan wanted to ask me about my book and my family and what it's been like going through this tough season. Here's a bit of that conversation. You you were diagnosed with stage four cancer, and then at a certain point, you found out that there was a trial you could take part in. Yeah, that's right. And you're right. in that trial now. I was in that trial for a little over a year, and then I um, stayed on that drug out of the trial. And I get scans every three months that let me know if the tumors are still in check. And so it, um, it's just like purgatory, I guess. Mm, that's interesting. Yes. None of us want to believe that we're going to die. Yeah. And you're, in a way, put in a position where you have to think of that. <laughs> yeah. But even I can't think of it. Like, I really, it's an impossible thought. How how could you possibly imagine your heart not beating and, you know, all the things that make What do you think you about when you think about This is really interesting. When, when you think about what yeah, – I imagine you think about it more than most of us do because it's, it's what you're struggling with. What do you think it would be like? Do you think that do – you, do you have a vision of what it would be like to not be here? It's funny, I the second I got sick, I started to think of my mental processes as double brain. Like one part of my brain is like exactly the way I was before, where I always imagine everything's going to work out and I'm making plans to, you know, run a marathon or mm. at least try 5K again. Um, 
And then the other part of my brain is always making plans that I will come to the end of myself and that I will have to be making plans for a life for my family beyond me. Mm. And they're always running concurrently, which is exhausting. It's like I've got two decision trees to make yes. for any yeah. major decision. Right. Like saving money or do you get a house or, you know, any any decision has yeah. two very complicated decision trees associated with it. And the one that pictures life without me I never think of myself. I only know how to press this despair into hope for my family. Yeah. And so you just, any plans you make is like emotional triage. You like cut off all the mm -hmm. terrible parts of that fear and then you transform them into beautiful ideas for other people. And so weirdly picturing death can only feel like love for someone else. I think you make a real contribution just on that point alone with with your book and and other things you've written where you really allow us to think about death and dying and what other people are going through as they have various responses to that fact that the one, it's the one universal fact we yeah. all face. Yeah. Why did you write the book? Oh, well. And why are you doing your podcast? I wrote the book as a love letter mm. to my family and to other people I knew who were in pain to try to ask the question, what is it like to live after you give up on some of your most deeply cherished lies like that everything's going to work out is there still true and beautiful things that we can still learn in the dark and so i i wrote the book to kind of dig down deep and um try to find new language to live in this new way and that's the same reason i'm doing this podcast is hopefully to thicken up that language for all of us so that we can communicate better about what it means to grapple with the beginning and the end. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for writing it, and thank you for talking about it that way. That's a beautiful way to express it. Oh, I'm grateful. Thanks for talking with me. Look, in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd utter the phrase, here's what I learned from Alan Alda. But here's what I learned from Alan Alda. We need to surrender the idea that just because we're talking, we're communicating. In Alan's book, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? He makes the point that we can miss each other in a zillion different ways. And here's the thing. He didn't come in with a script, lines fully rehearsed and ready to deliver. He was there to engage, to ask questions, and to keep reflecting my own thoughts back to me until, guess what? Our words made a little magic. They danced a little. And what a thrill, even in the darkness, to bump into some great dance partners. And so here we are at the end of season one. And yes, if we're talking about season one, then there's got to be a season two, right? Right. There's just so much more to say, to figure out, don't you think? 
So I'm working with my team to bring you more amazing guests and their amazing stories. So we'll be back soon. And in the meantime, send us your ideas for people you'd like to hear from. Email me at everythinghappenspodcast at duke.edu. Look for updates for me at Kate C. Bowler on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And of course, if you've subscribed to Everything Happens, the first episode of the new season will magically pop up in your feed as soon as it's ready. I can't wait. And look, in the meantime, I am so grateful to know that there are so many people like me who wish that the world was a little gentler for delicate hearts like mine. So thank you, my dears. Everything Happens is produced by Duke University in association with North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Support comes from Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. And so many thanks goes to my awesome team, Beverly Abel, Allison Jones, Amanda Height, and the Be the Change Revolutions team, Ivan Panarewski, and Random House. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to Apple Podcasts and post a review. And come find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>